Let me start us off with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray right now that as we approach this important chapter in this book, that Lord, you help me be clear. You help me, Lord, speak well. And that Lord, your spirit will be the one that moves amongst the hearts of the people here. Now, Lord, those who hear your word will be convicted by your word, and they will seek to obey your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you will just be with us here tonight in this room. I pray, Lord, that our, our ears will be tuned to your voice and that our fellowship will be centered upon Christ. So I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10. Let me go ahead and just read this passage first for us. All right. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. That ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge what was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who has not, who has not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its marks on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet were, and they, were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. Before we get started, I'm going to turn down the AC so it doesn't feel like a lake of fire. All right. Um, all right. So we are, again, in the most important chapter of Revelation. And I, you know, before we get into the passage itself, I just want to review, review a little bit about what we cover in Revelation, especially since we have some newer people in here, and we have, um, and we have also the incoming freshmen who did not sit through any of our teaching through Revelation last year. Um, and so, I want us to just, just cover a little bit about this. And I also want to cover why this chapter is so important. First, if you guys have, if you guys have been with us, Revelation, this whole structure right now, has been 
we, we covered seven years of tribulation. Seven years of tribulation where we've seen the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And this is a view that I take to how, do, how chronologically that plays out. It's called a telescopic view where the seals kind of expand out. And the sixth and seventh seal, it opens up to the trumpets. And that kind of happens simultaneously. And then the seventh trumpet opens up to the seven bowls. And that happens really fast in succession. And then comes the final judgment, which we read about last week with, in chapter 19. And so this is how I see what's going on. So we have reached the end of these seven years of tribulation. The seven years of God's judgment upon the earth. And now we reach chapter 20. And the reason why chapter 20 is so important is because chapter 20 talks about the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, how you interpret the millennial kingdom determines how you read the rest of Revelation. The millennial kingdom consists of uh, these, uh, these, these different attributes in chapter 20. We, have, we see that Satan is bound. We have the first resurrection. Then we have the reign for a thousand years, the second resurrection. And then Satan's released and defeated. We, and we, we just read that. And then at the end of chapter 20, we have the great white throne judgment. Now, how do we interpret this? Well, there are three major views to how you understand Revelation, how you understand this millennial kingdom. Um, and these three views are, we covered them early on in our series. And so I'm just, again, just trying to review, trying to see if we can cover these quickly. The first view is this, premillennialism which is the view I take, uh, which reads the thousand years millennial kingdom, the thousand years reign of Christ as a literal thousand years that will happen in the future. Right? Whenever this kingdom starts, it's going to last for a thousand years and then it will end. So right now we are in the church age, that is the present age. Then in the future there will be a seven year tribulation. That that seven year, when that's over, we have the first resurrection, thousand years, Second, uh, unbelievers' resurrection, and then a new creation after that. All right, and then during that time, during this whole time, the church in Israel exists, and we we have this whole. We, I also cover all the different views of the rapture, which I'm not going to get into here. Um, but this is this this is the view I take. That's a literal 1,000 years that will happen in the future. Amillennialism is saying that the thousand years is symbolic. They argue this because there's actually many symbols throughout Revelation. They'll say the thousand years is also a symbol. And it's a symbol that right now we are living in the millennial kingdom. That Christ, when he died on the cross, that bounded Satan. Right? His death on the cross bounded Satan, his power. And now during this time, the millennial kingdom is happening. There's a spiritual reign. But that also means that how they interpret tribulation, that seven tribulation is also symbolic. It's also this seven-year period that's symbolic of representing the tribulation that's happening right now. Now there's that while while Christ is reigning, there's still persecution against the church. And so those two things are happening at the present time. And then when Christ comes at the end, then the new creation will happen. Alright? And so they will argue that the first resurrection, which we read about here, is a spiritual resurrection. And then the second one is a physical one. So that's amillennialism. They inter they have a more symbolic interpretation of Revelation. So again, see how you see how you understand this millennial kingdom is how you understand is how you understand the rest of Revelation. And the third major view is postmillennialism, and this is also in a way symbolic. It's understanding that the millennial kingdom in the tribulation period is happening right now during this church age. But their argument is not that there will be this one last judgment that will happen, and then the 
new creation would happen. What they argue is that the earth and society is actually getting better. And it's getting better and better. In the millennial kingdom of the church, as the church continues to obey the gospel and continue to spread the gospel, evangelize, and more and more people get saved, that the earth will become better and better, and then new creation, and then it will usher in into this golden age, and then new creation, where there's peace and no more sin. All right, so that's the argument of post-millennialism. This was really heavily prevalent before World War One and Two, and then the World Wars happened, and this their views kind of kind of crashed a little bit because of what happened with that. Um, but it is again picking back up more and more recent times, especially with the age of technology and things like that. This view has been gaining more and more traction again. Again, I don't hold to this view. I hold to premillennialism. I believe that. All this is all of this in Revelation is talking about future times that has not yet happened, and that's how I'm going to interpret this passage. That's how I'm going to preach about it. If you have any questions about these things, come talk to me. I can show you why people believe in certain things and what it all means. Um, but I just yeah, I couldn't get super deep into it. Instead, what I really want to get down to today is show you why the Millennial Kingdom is so important for us as Christians, as believers here today. Like, even if this is future, there's great implications of why this is so important to us. And why uh, something like this, something like Revelation is written for us. So the first thing we're going to see here is the kingdom inaugurated, meaning the kingdom beginning. In order to establish a millennial kingdom, Christ must first come and imprison the current ruler of this world, which is Satan. Satan. Now, throughout Revelation, we've read about four different evil characters. All right? We have the dragon. So this in order of appearance. We have the dragon, which is Satan. We have the beast. Then we have the false prophet. And then we have the prostitute. All right? I mean, there, there should probably be like a name for these four characters. I don't know if we can call them something. Legion of Doom or something. I don't know. Um, in any case, we, we, we have these four characters. And each of these four characters have been dealt with. The prostitute back in chapter 17 was destroyed actually by the beast, the false prophet. They turned against the prostitute. The prostitute represented an evil empire and that got overturned and destroyed by the beast and the false prophet who, were, who then took over and now reigned over the earth. Then the beast and the false prophet, these two individuals whom the, the dragon Satan empowered, at the end of chapter 19, which we read last week, it says here in the end chapter 19, verse 20, it says these two, the, the false prophet and the beast, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So they were thrown into the lake of fire. They were, they were destroyed. And now here in the beginning of chapter 20, the dragon, the final evil character of Revelation, is being dealt with. He is here, not, not thrown to the lake of fire. It says here, it says he's thrown to an abyss, a bottomless pit. And this serves as a temporary prison for him for a thousand years. So what we see here is one by one, these evil characters are being picked off. Right? They're, they're being picked off and, and Satan here is thrown into a prison. Thrown into a prison. Now, Satan is thrown into a prison and it says because he has deceived Nations, right? So that he may not deceive nations any longer, meaning he was deceiving nations up until this time. Satan is indeed the great deceiver. 
And, and this is important for us to recognize that Satan indeed was deceiving the entire world since creation, since the beginning, since since he talked to Eve and told Eve that he that she should take the fruit of good and evil. And this is, and, and we see this throughout Revelation. Right? Throughout Revelation, we see the world turning against God. We see the world worshiping the beast in his image. We see the world listening to the false prophet. The world proclaiming allegiance with the prostitute, with the evil empire. All this happening because Satan is the great deceiver. He's been working this deception. And, and we had to keep in mind that we had to keep in mind that this is happening right now, too. Satan is still deceiving people us was this deception well we were created to know God we were created in the image of God we are created to worship God we are to be his image here on earth meaning we are created here already with a connection with God in the image of God meaning we don't when, when we're blinded to that fact when we're deceived we're we don't end up we don't end up coming to discover God, right? Like, when we come to faith, when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, it isn't like we fall upon by accident. It wasn't like we just got smart and we use our big brain to figure this whole thing out. It's, we, it, we remember, we are deceived. We were, when we were in sin, we were deceived. We were blinded by Satan himself. Second Corinthians 4 says this, in, the, in their case, in unbelievers' case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is no way we could find God in our own power. We are blinded to this truth. And this is difficult, right? Because when we talk to unbelievers or if you yourself here are still wrestling through this, when we think about how opinions work, how perspective work, right? How we understand, how we how we understand this world, what we I mean, just think about just how people have opinions. And if you're deceived, you you'll think that your opinion is true. And therefore you think what you have is the truth. Which is why when we think about something like politics and all the news outlets out there and they're all proclaiming this is facts, this is true, and they, they would say and they'll talk about other people's opinions and they'll be like, No, they're wrong. And they'll stay outright because they believe what they see, how they interpret the world is true. When you think something is true, when you think something, when you have that strong of opinion, it's hard to it's it's hard to see that you yourself are blinded to something. And we, I mean, which is to say, we can also argue the world can argue against us that perhaps we are blinded because we follow Christ. So what exactly is true? I think this here. I think this here requires us to, to discern a little bit about exactly what is truth and where does truth come from. And when we slowly understand, when we slowly understand, when we read through the Word of God and we understand what the Word of God is, what Scripture is, that Scripture itself is a revelation, not, not the book of Revelation, but the Scripture itself is a revelation, meaning it's not something that's that mankind made up. It's not something we figured out, but something that was revealed to us by God the God who created the earth and he himself is true. What he has given to us is true. And we start, and that starts molding the way we understand his word. That starts interpreting the world around us. And this itself is a foundation. It's not us 
it's not it's not based on our experience it's not based on um it's not based on the way we've you know we, our personalities the way we've grown up it's more based upon what god has shown to us then we start seeing here then we start wrestling exactly is our opinion based upon ourselves or is it based upon god and what he revealed to us true we can get more into this if you guys been listening to us on sundays um hanley and i pastor hanley and i have been talking about uh, Sunday school where we talk about theology and in that theology class uh, starting in October we're going to wrestle with some of these things we're going to wrestle with exactly what is true why do we believe scripture is true and things like that and so if you're more interested in talking about this stuff and more philosophically or more deeper come out to the Sunday school I encourage you guys to come out and engage with us about these things but in any case the reason why I'm talking about this is because when we say when when this, when Scripture says here that Satan has deceived nations, Satan has deceived the world. We're talking about something that's we're talking about something where meaning that what God has here revealed to us that's what's true. What everyone else has, they've been deceived. They've been blinded to this truth. And perhaps the biggest deception Satan has spread in this world is a lie that the world here does not belong. To God. The world here does not belong to God. And we hear this in so many different forms. We hear in the forms of the world belongs to humanity. Therefore, we, we are the ones who must save the world, right? Save it from global warming and all that sort of stuff. Or perhaps we are, perhaps the world doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to Mother Nature. And we should just go back to being like animals we should not we should not you know we should not feel like we're superior to them we hear this in all these different ways we think about how people are deceived whether it's by islam or hinduism deceived by secularism materialism scientism all these different things their arguments if there's a worldview behind them that sees that the world is not owned by the God of the Bible. It's not ruled by the God of the Bible. And when we hear things like this, when we hear that, when we hear that the rest of the world is deceived and lost and blind, it shouldn't make us angry. Deception is a reminder that we should be compassionate. Because we too were once deceived. Now we too did not again stumble upon God because of our own might or because of our own wisdom or power. God found us and it's by His grace we are saved. It's by His grace we've come to know Him. we come to know Christ. It's by grace that we heard the gospel preached to us, ministered to us, and the seed of the word planted into our hearts and the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see the truth is all by the work of God alone that grace reminds us that the world around us they're not just they're not fighting against us they are they do hate Christianity but it's it's more than that they're being deceived and they're lost they're blinded by Satan and that should give us compassion against this world we're dealing with lost sinners who need to hear about Christ, who need to hear about the gospel and the hope that it presents. And so this here is important. We need, 
we need to deal with the main cause of this deception, the deceiver, Satan. And here Christ deals with him. Christ deals with him. Christ shuts him up. Christ bounds him into this abyss, seals this up, seal it for a thousand years. And during then, only then, can Christ establish his kingdom here on earth, which reaches our next section, the kingdom reign. And here, starting in verse 4, the Apostle John, he, he sees thrones. And upon these thrones were seated, were all of them were occupied by saints. All of them were occupied by believers. Some of these believers were those who were beheaded because they were beheaded, they were persecuted, they were martyrs. And this reminds us of what the martyrs were crying out back in Revelation chapter 6. They were crying out to God, how long? How long until you avenge us and we are justified here? They are now rewarded for their faithfulness, seated upon thrones. We see these believers, their description, their, these saints, they did not worship the beast in its image. They did not have a mark on their forehead. No, these saints, they're marked by something else. They're marked by the, their faithfulness to the testimony of Christ and to the word of God. You see, the church... Us here, we are never marked by our appearance. We're never marked by legalistic rituals. We don't come to church on Sundays because we have to. We should. It's good for us. And we want to. But we don't do it because that's what makes, that's what makes us righteous. We're not clothed in a certain way. We don't put on a certain clothing that we should be modest. We don't perform certain rituals that we do practice Lord's Supper and Baptism because they're, again, good things. What the church is marked, the church is always instead marked by obedience to God's Word. By an obedience to God's Word. And so when we talk about spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines is, are, isn't, is, you don't do it to make yourself feel right. You do them because you love God. And you have this obedience to God, this obedient love towards God. You're saying, I love your word. I love knowing about you. And so let me then dwell in your word. Let me pray to you. Let me read your word. Obedient love to Christ shows up in our spiritual disciplines. It also shows up in our public proclamation. We, that's what baptism is. Baptism itself, you know, that water is not like it's holy. It's not like we're doing anything with it. We don't like, you know, we don't necessarily pray over it. It's just water from, from the tap. You know, we just, we just have us, we just turn on the hose and, and fill it up. It's, it's just water. But what it is, what it symbolizes, is a public proclamation of your faith toward, for people, for the church to see. And for the church to say, all right, you are a believer. And we see that. We see your commitment to it. And you publicly shown that through us through your baptism. This is why in so many places, um, again, I just came out from missions, um, from a mission organization this past week, uh, the IMB, their Southern Baptist Mission uh, mission Organization. And I was talking with them and they were talking to us how in so many Muslim countries, there are believers, proclaiming believers, but many of them are not baptized because the minute they do, that becomes a public announcement to their family, to their community, that they're Christians and they'll immediately get persecuted. So they they publicly affirmed it quietly. Or they, they I mean they, they verbally affirmed it, but it's quiet. And and yes, they're working through what does that mean then? Because yes, they are if they probably if they verbally said it, they believe it, they truly believe it, they are saved, but yet at the same time, there needs to be that first step of obedience 
to be baptized and publicly recognized as a Christian. And, and a lot of discipleship that's happening in these Muslim countries for believers is actually helping them take that first step of obedience. And yet it's scary. You see, the church is always marked by obedient love for Christ. The rituals itself are not what saved us. It's, it's about our hearts. And then talks about here in this passage, talks about the first resurrection. See, these saints, they are sitting on the thrones, but they have, they're ones who've been, who are dead, and now they came to life, and they reign with Christ, and they have come to life. They have been risen from the dead. This is the first resurrection. And the millennial kingdom is bookended here by two different resurrections. The first resurrection is what we call the believer's resurrection. And the second resurrection is the unbeliever's resurrection. Now, why these resurrections ha must happen, a lot, part of it is because in order for us to be humans, truly humans, we must have a physical form. right? To be just a soul doesn't make us fully human. So we must be resurrected. But in the first resurrection here is a believer's resurrection. Jesus actually talks about this in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 28 to 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgments. And so this here is talking about the first resurrection, the resurrection of life. It's for the saints. It's for the righteous. And they've, they've risen up here again to reign with Christ. And it says here in verse 6 that they are blessed and holy. We have a beatitude here. Blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Why? Because over such, the second death has no power. What is the second death? Well, if you turn the page with me, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it talks about the second death. It says, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the, for the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the second death is them joining the beast, the false prophet, and, the, and Satan, the dragon, in the lake of fire. That is the second death. And, and those who who are part of first resurrection we won't ever experience that we will never experience the second death and that's a good thing blessed are those who share in the first resurrection but the most important point here about these three verses verse 4 to 6 is that those who are part of the first resurrection the saints the church the believers however you want to label them we will we will rule the earth under the sovereignty of Christ, sorry, not the sovereign Christ, the sovereignty of Christ should be a noun. Um, and so we are reigning with Christ. That's it's so important. Every time it says that these saints they're reigning, it says they reign with Christ. It always emphasizes that we're doing it with Christ. We don't have this reign. The church don't sit on thrones unless Christ reigns. We don't rule because we deserve to. We rule because Christ reigns. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in this case, 
we, the church, believers have become the kings and the lords whom Christ is king and lord over. And this has been talked about throughout Scripture. Uh, I have a bunch of verses here, but let me just point out one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's a promise given to us from the Word of God. So this is the King Reign. I'm going to keep moving on because there's quite a few other things I want to cover here. <clears throat> then in verse 7 to 10, we see here the kingdom end. The kingdom end. And here we see here that at the end of a thousand years, Satan's release, and he goes out and he deceives the nations. And it's interesting here, verse, you know, it says here he'll go deceive the nations and, and he'll gather them, gather them and surround the camp of the Lord, camp of the saints, and they'll, and they'll get ready to, to, to pretty much commit war, to, to call out a battle against the saints. And so Satan will go out, and he says here he'll deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth. So if you're a flat earth conspiracy, this is your proof text that there's four corners around the earth. Just kidding. But, you know, some people, some people claim that. Um, for, for the four corners of the earth, you can interpret that so many different ways. I, I believe uh, one commentator said the four corners are the four points of the compass. I don't really see that because I don't know if that's what John's referring to. I just think he's using imagery to say the whole earth. And and, he, and we, well, as we're talking about this, there, there's, a, there's a major question that has to be resolved here. The question is this. Who are the ones being deceived? Right, because if the millennial kingdom has happened, right, the millennial kingdom, thousand years reign, you have believers coming in, and they're resurrected in their glorified bodies. They can know they're before Christ. Christ is sitting there on the throne with them. How can they be deceived? Who here is being deceived? Right? Now, there are different ways to, to understand this. One commentator says that there are... If, so, I, so if, you believe that, if you believe that the rapture happens way early in, during the tribulation period, not at the end of chapter 19, so it's way earlier, then you believe that those who have been raptured, they have now risen up again, resurrected bodies, they cannot be deceived. But there are still some people who are saved after the rapture. They, they, they become believers, but they, since they weren't raptured up, they enter into the kingdom as in their sinful bodies, in their first bodies, because they never died. right? So they just enter in. They didn't get judged because they're believers, but they didn't get raptured either. So they just enter into the kingdom, this millennial kingdom, this thousand years, in their sinful bodies. Then... During this time, there's procreation that happens. Sinful bodies create children, which have a sinful nature. And eventually, as the world repopulates, these sinful nature, these children, become those who become deceived. That's one interpretation. I simply just think, one, well, first, I don't think we'll ever really know. But I, I think that this is probably referring to the second resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection of believers who come up and they're unbelievers. And so they, they were deceived before and they're deceived again. And they become that mass group of army that comes against the Lord. So I believe that what this is talking about, Satan here is gathering up the second resurrection. This, the unbelievers who have been resurrected come to life. And they are gathered up 
and then now they march down against the camp of the saints against God you can think about it anyway again I don't think it's that clear but it is a question that must be answered it's a question that we must have it says here that these nations they're called Gog and Magog now these aren't Pokemons this is Gog here and Magog refers to a prophecy found in Ezekiel all right Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 there's judgment a prophecy against Gog and Magog Gog is an individual he's a leader and he is a leader of this nation called Magog and they come against Jerusalem they come against Israel and God says I will judge them and I will destroy them but that prophecy was never fulfilled in the Old Testament there was no Gog and Magog that came against Israel and so here we see this then prophecy being fulfilled here Gog and Magog gathering up together and God here God here destroys them what we see here what we see here is that even in their resurrection even in their unbelievers resurrection after experiencing suffering after experiencing death after experiencing torment Satan and his followers still refuse to repent and follow God it shows us just how deep depravity truly is rooted in our sinful nature and God here again, sorry, I, God here again, and for the final time, he defeats Satan and his army in one swift attack. He throws Satan, this time not into the abyss, throws him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they experience pain and torment forever and ever, for eternity. We will cover the great white throne where those unbelievers who are resurrected, they will face their own judgment. We'll cover that next week. But I want to come to, I want us to understand kind of the purpose of this passage. Because there's a question to this passage. If you're following along here and you're reading this, there is a question that must, that, that must be asked. I don't know if you guys are asking this question. I know I did when I read this. And the question is, why, why does God do it this way? Like, for instance, why did God just put Satan into a pit for a thousand years and then just release him? Why release him? Why bring him back out? Why let the dog back out? Right? It's, what's going on here? Right? What's going on here? I think the bigger question here, though, so a lot of commentators have asked this question, and they try to give answers to this question, and I think the bigger question is, why have the millennial kingdom? Because if the millennial kingdom wasn't here, this reign of a thousand years wasn't here, and God simply just comes, bouncing it up, then releases him and throws him into the lake of fire, if all that just kind of happens without this millennial kingdom happening in the middle of it, I think we would be okay with it, because this is God's just simply judging Satan and his followers, right? But why does this millennial kingdom happen, this time of peaceful reign this time when christ rules over the earth the saints resurrect and enjoy this kingdom life right the kingdom of heaven coming on earth this is what we pray for right thy kingdom come when we enjoy this time this thousand year reign why does this happen and suddenly god just ends it what is the whole purpose behind this i think that's the bigger question and 
I think this, I think we want, we need to, we need to think through this a little bit. And it's at this point where I want to cover some theology. I believe this all has to go all the way back to creation. It goes all the way back to why we exist here on earth. The kingdom here is a kingdom fulfilled. It begins with the creation mandate. The creation mandate is what God, when he created Adam and Eve, he created mankind, he gave them a command. He gave them a command of of saying, this is your purpose. This is why you're created. Right? God told Adam and Eve that we were created. We were created to be priest kings over the earth. To be a priest king over the earth. That is the purpose of humanity. We are created to rule and reign over the earth. In order to prove this, Genesis 1.28. We know this verse, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word subdue and have dominion speaks of how one rules over and has this reign over the earth, reign over all other creatures. We are to be kings over the earth, kings and queens over the earth. Where does the idea of priesthood come in? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord took the man and put, not put high, put him, put him in the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. The phrase work it and keep it is the same Hebrew words used to describe what the priest did with the high temple. The priest in the temple, they were to, God says, you are to work and keep the temple. I mean, put, keep it in order, clean it up. You are, you're a priest before the people and before God and you are to keep things in order. And so this language then shows us that humanity, our purpose is to work and keep the earth and rule over it. We are to be priests, kings over the earth. But what's happened? Well, we see that Adam fails. Right? Adam and Eve failed. They, they were deceived by Satan. They failed and they failed to obey God, to fulfill this command. And this then... This then introduces sin into the earth, into the world. But God, God continues to work, right? God continues to work throughout this time. And so God, he promised that the seed of Adam would crush the, Satan, would crush the serpent's head, which we see here in the Revelation, the serpent being crushed. But throughout this time, God has been working to redeem humanity's creation. He's, in other words... When we're talking about the church and we're talking about salvation, we're talking about all the stuff that we're doing, we're talking about being saved. It's not just about saving our souls from hell. God is not just in the business of saving people. He's in the business of redeeming them in order to reestablish his kingdom rule. That's what he wants to do. He wants to restore humanity's purpose here on earth. And we see this through Adam, or we see this through Abraham next. Right? God chose Abraham, called Abraham out of his home, and he says, All right, Abraham, I will make a covenant with you. And in this covenant, 
This sounds just like the mandate given to Adam. He tells Abraham that he's going to be a father of a kingdom of priests. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you, what, exceedingly fruitful, right? Fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. We see here, God still has a plan to bring this royal rule over the earth through humanity. And God plans to do that through Abraham and his line. And we see this promise go from Abraham to Isaac to Judah. And the prophecy given to Judah says that the line of Judah will come and there will be a scepter and a staff, kingly symbols in Judah's, in Judah's line. This was meant to be what Israel becomes. In Israel, when God saves them from Egypt, when God brings them to Mount Sinai, God tells them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was meant to be a righteous kingdom, a kingdom for God, a kingdom that will conquer other kingdoms in their sins, other nations in their sins, and establish a godly reign over the earth. It was through Israel God was planning to fulfill this mandate, to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. But we see here Israel struggle as well with sin. They struggle with sin and they continue to feel Israel needed a king. And God acknowledged that. God recognized that Israel needed a king priest, one like David, to lead the nation, to usher God's kingdom rule across the earth. He needed one like David. Not this David, but King David. <laughs> and, and we see here, we see here that Israel, Israel is meant to be this holy nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15 and 18, talks about this king of Israel. This is before David comes into the scene, right? Before King David comes into the scene. This is still during the time of Moses in Deuteronomy. So this is what God, this is what God said through Moses. It says, You, Israel, may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So this is not so Israel is meant to have a king, but not one they would choose, the one that God will choose. And when this king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a, a book, a copy of this law. Meaning, he is to obey this law. This law that was approved by the Levitical priests. You see, this king was not meant to just rule over the nation, but this king was meant to be a righteous priest, intermediating between God and the rest of the nation. This king was supposed to lead them in a priest-like way. A way of righteousness, a way of purity. This king, this king was supposed to have a pure and godly rule over the nation. And it's by this king, this king leads the nation again to fulfill humanity's purpose. And so when King David comes onto the scene, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God makes this promise with him. And he says, I will raise up your David, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And yet, we know after this, the line of kings that come after David, Solomon, and on and on, they continue to fail. Continue to fail to uphold the law of God. 
continue to fail to be king priest, to lead the nation in righteousness. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the descendant of Abraham, the Lion of Judah, the seed of Adam, when it wasn't until Jesus came, until we've seen this righteous king come, Jesus here, Jesus here fulfills all these promises. And so what Jesus here is doing is Jesus fulfilling the role of humanity that Adam, Abraham, David, and many others failed to do. He is the perfect priest, king. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says, um, sorry, man, I've been having a lot of typos. It's not not, it should be now. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Now, all right, now. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty in heaven. This, this shows to you guys how important it is to get the word of God right. <laughs> All right, so. Human errors, but God's word is perfect. <coughs> Jesus is the high priest, but he's not just a high priest but he is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is a king as well. That's why in Hebrews it says he is after the order of Melchizedek, who himself was a priest king back in Genesis. You see what Jesus has done? In his first coming, he comes, and what he does is he fulfills the first part of the creation mandate. He was fruitful and he multiplied. How? Through the gospel, through his blood, he saved many. He saved both Jews and Gentiles. He saved your soul to bring you into his fold, to, to, to populate his kingdom. He multiplied. And then, and then in the second coming, what we read here in Revelation, Jesus comes to lead the church, to lead believers to fulfill the rest of humanity's purpose. To subdue and have dominion over earth this is what's happening here this is why the millennial kingdom is so necessary is because here we see christ fulfilling what we have failed to do on our own we needed christ we needed christ not just to be saved from hell not just to be saved in the wrath of god but we needed christ to be redeemed and restored back to true humanity jesus is our awe. He is indeed the second Adam. He is indeed the better David. He is indeed the one true human. And he redeems us to be truly human as well. Millennial, the millennial kingdom is where Christ subdues the earth and leads us to fulfill our created purpose. This is why this thousand years happened. So that this first creation isn't just destroyed and God says, well, that's it. No, God is in the business of redeeming and restoring humanity so that we can live out our part, our creative purpose. And this is not the end of the story because when we're done with this, we'll reach new heavens and new earth. And I'll talk about why that's necessary. But we see here the millennial kingdom here is to fulfill our purpose here on earth in Christ. The big idea here is that Jesus Christ redeems his church to be truly human, fulfilling humanity's purpose on being the image of God 
being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth, having dominion over the earth. And this, this is the true purpose of the millennial kingdom. This is why, again, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. In the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We will be priest kings here on earth perfectly because of Christ. Now let me give some quick applications for us on why this is important. I know I'm going a little bit over time, but let me just talk about this real quick because we can get all this but how does it apply to you now this applies to us now because it reminds us of how important Christianity the gospel of Jesus Christ is it's important for you it's important for your friends it's important for your family it's important for the world to know it's important because it reminds us that humanity matters that humans are created in the image of God. And that this alone reminds us that every person we meet, no matter what, where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what condition they're born in, no matter what situation they might be in, they all have value. It reminds us that we are here and we're dealing with human beings who are lost, who are blinded, who are deceived from this purpose. We, should, we have to remind the world through the gospel, that human beings were not any less than animals, we're not equal to other animals, we are created separately to rule over them. Not like we need to make all animals our pets, just, we just need a, but we are uniquely different. We are uniquely different. Just, just a side note, I'm not a big pet person, so, um, part of the reason is because if I think about pets and how much they cost, I'm just like, you know, I'd rather have a kid, a, 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 you know, than, than a pet because with a kid I can make make a disciple out of him, but I can't make a disciple out of a pet. So, I, I, any case, <laughs> any case, not to say if you guys have pets and you guys love your pets, I'm not I'm not saying you guys are on wrong. I just just my personal opinion. <laughs> um, any, but the. The gospel is more than just saving souls. It's reminding us we are being redeemed to our original created purpose. It's reminding us that human beings matter. Humanity matters. It's not about saving the earth or destroying the earth. It's about restoring humanity to be kings and queens of the earth. Humanity matters. I mean, all of us. Every single part of us matters. When I say we're humans... It's not just our souls. It's not just our minds, our emotions. It's our flesh as well. All of it matters. We're all created with a purpose, with intention. Meaning, that means then who we are. Our personalities, our attributes, our gender, our family, our history, our ethnicity, our status, our finances. All of that matters. All that was given to us for a reason. All that makes us human. Humanity matters, but we also remind the world that glory matters. We think about the world today and we think about the rise of things like depression and depression happens for many reasons and so I don't want to, you know, undermine anything here or not, you know, but just have a, but just think broadly about, about something like depression. One of the reasons why people may feel depressed, and I'm not saying this is the only reason, but one of the reasons is because people may feel like there is no purpose to life, that there is no hope, no reason 
to keep moving. That every day feels the same. They're wondering why. Why go to work? Why study? Why do this and that? What is the meaning behind all of this? This this passage, this millennial kingdom reminds us that Jesus saves us not so we can live a dull life. Right? If you can say you're a Christian and you just go through your day by day and you feel like, you know, life is just a dull No, we're not saved to a dull life. When Jesus saved us, he says, You are blessed. You're gonna live a blessed life, a life that's filled with joy filled with the Spirit, a life that's focused on glorifying Christ, a life that sees Christ magnified in all of His beauty, and that fills you up with joy. We're reminded that we will one day reign. We will reign with Christ in this millennial kingdom where there's no more sin, and there will be peace across the earth, and, it will be, and you'll be filled with joy. This is a life that's not boring. This is a life that's, no, this is a life that's filled with glory and purpose. Again, we're not just saved from hell, but we're saved to be redeemed, restored to such a glory. That's the purpose of humanity. God is saving us to this. And that glory doesn't come from our own intrinsic value. That glory comes from Christ and Christ alone. He is the one who saves us and we will reign with Him. And finally, we see here that redemption matters. It's not, again, the gospel. We don't share the gospel just to save people. We're not just avoiding hell. Salvation, the gospel, is about redemption. Meaning it's not it's about saving you from judgment, but and also restoring you in Christ to true humanity. And this matters because we're all searching for redemption. If you're in a spot where you feel like you've been hurt, or you feel like injustice was done to you, you don't just want vengeance. You don't just want justice done. Right, because people in that position, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if you've been hurt by someone, that person faces punishment. You still feel those scars, don't you? You still feel that pain. You see, justice can only take you so far. What we need is redemption to make us whole again, to make us feel complete again, to make us feel valued again, and Jesus does that. Jesus redeems us. He heals our wounds. He makes us whole again. He gives us joy. He fills us up. And He resurrects us. Not in our old bodies that's broken and sinful, but He resurrects us in a glorified body that's perfect, redeemed, and filled with joy. That's why justice alone doesn't satisfy the soul. It's redemption that matters. And that's why we talk about Redeemer. We talk about Jesus. He is indeed the Savior of the world and the Redeemer. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will reign with Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for bringing us here. I thank You, Lord, for bringing us here to study Your Word, a passage like Revelation chapter 20 that shows us the future, that shows us this millennium kingdom reign that's going to be glorious, that's going to be wonderful, that's going to be so, so joyful, so filled with Your glory, Your majesty, Your beauty. God, may our eyes be fixated upon this, and may we be reminded, may we be reminded that this truth gives us hope it gives us purpose it gives us joy 
And so, Lord, as we continue to share our lives and we share Christ with others, to those around us, I pray, Lord, that we are reminded of what a wonderful, wonderful place to be in, to have a relationship with you, to know Christ, and to know what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. And so, Lord, let us be thankful. Let us continue to live a life that honors you, that glorifies you, because that is what truly gives us life. So thank you, God, for all you have done for us. Thank you, for Lord, for not just saving us, but also redeeming us for your glory and our joy. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.